0: Okay, I guess we can get started. Uh, just uh, two announcements. Of course, um, no Bible study next week, and then I guess not the week after that either. I think I put up the schedule last time. Um, there's a book out front that um, is a very good book that uh, uh, Dorothy and I actually bought for the medical students a couple years ago, and we had some left over. So if you want to uh, pick one up on the way out, uh, it's an excellent read if you're looking for something over spring break. Um, but Maybe you don't want to read for a week, and I would understand. Um, the other thing is, and I suppose none of you are going to be up in Canada um, during spring break, but there's going to be an excellent uh, conference in Vancouver, B.C., uh, March 20 and 21. And it's a subject uh, conference about the character of God. Uh, really going to be very exciting. So any of you who are interested, going to be up in that uh, area, let me know. Um, I'll tell you a little more about it. All right, let's pray as we begin. <clears throat> Father, please come close to each one of us just now. We know that you are, but help us to open our minds to you and just now settle into our minds this wonderful truth about the gospel, the good news. Amen. Well, as you read through these books of Paul, you really kind of get a sense for the kind of person that Paul was. Remember we talked last time about Corinthians and the fiery words that he had uh, to the church there in Corinth. And the book of Galatians opens up with a similar kind of style. Paul would say, I am surprised at you. In no time at all, you are deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are accepting another gospel. Actually, there is no other gospel. But I say this because there are some people who are upsetting you and trying to change the gospel of Christ. And notice the strong words here. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that is different from the one we preach to you, may he be condemned to hell. Now, that's pretty strong. Um, Imagine that uh, maybe you run into a a student after the Bible study today, and someone said, uh, well, what did Dr. Cole talk about? Uh, Well, he talked about the gospel. What did he say? Well, he said, if you don't accept his gospel, may you be condemned to hell. I mean, can you imagine um, using words like that to say with such authority I feel so strong about the gospel that if you don't accept this version of the gospel, may you be condemned to hell. Now, wouldn't that suggest, if uh, we accept Paul as an authority here, that uh, his version of the gospel be pretty important that we understand what is the gospel? What is the good news? And it would seem that in the church here that uh, there was another version of the gospel that was circulating. And uh, what will really come up here in the book of Galatians is that um, you know these people were really coming out of a law-dominated existence, the Jews, and that we were put right with God mainly by keeping the list. And this is what Paul was up against. And this was uh, kind of at the core of the distortion of the gospel during that time. Of course, the gospel has been distorted in many ways uh, through history, but our subject really will be how do we understand the law and how do we understand the gospel? <clears throat> Just again to make the setting about these people. We read this verse in Romans, but it carries through all the way. This is what Paul was trying to reform the Jews who were becoming Christians. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is that the Jewish people might be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with Himself. Okay, how does God make people right with Himself? Instead, they are clinging to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. They won't go along with God's way. Okay, So trying to get right with God by keeping the law. And Paul is going to say, no, there's another way to get right with God. Just to to skip forward, to say how strong Paul would feel about this. These people who were in a law-dominated existence. Circumcision, of course, part of the law. And so Paul would come back to this and say, as for the rumor that I continue to preach the ways of circumcision, as I did in those pre-Damascus Road days, that is absurd. Why would I still be persecuted then? If I were preaching that old message, no one would be offended if I mentioned the cross now and then. It would be so watered down, it wouldn't matter one way or the other. And you can read this next part of the verse in any translation. And uh, this is the meaning. Why don't these agitators, obsessive as they are about circumcision, go all the way and castrate themselves? I mean, was Paul passionate about the gospel here? And uh, he is using very, very strong words to say, no, this is a distortion. Now, just in terms of a relative sense, notice what Paul would say about something like the day of worship. He would say, some people think that a certain day is more important than other days. And it's true, some people think that while others think that all days are the same. And notice, and if you accept another day other than the one that we've learned, may you be condemned to hell. But no, on the day of worship, we should each firmly make up our own minds. Okay, now not to diminish the significance of the day of worship in any sense, but again, as Paul would say, you accept another gospel, that's terrible. Okay, day of worship, let everyone be fully persuaded in their own mind. So what is the gospel? Well, just what we've summarized so far about the gospel through Romans and Corinthians. Paul would say, "...for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For the, go- for the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel." And we spent so much time talking about this verse in Romans because it is the thesis for the whole rest of the book. In the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. The goodness of God, the love of God, the character of God, that is the essence of the gospel. It's a message about the kind of person our God is. And um, again, uh, coming up here to Romans 3, this whole passage three times mentions this one phrase But Paul would say, God publicly dis- displayed him, Christ, at his death as the mercy seat, accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Okay, of course, the supreme demonstration of God's goodness and love was demonstrated as he died on the cross and forgave those that tortured him to death. And uh, again, just one more. We could make so many more of these, but the one we finished the Bible study on last time here in 2 Corinthians 4, what is the gospel? For if the gospel we preach is hidden... It is hidden only from those who are being lost. They do not believe because their minds have been kept in the dark by the evil God of this world. He keeps them from seeing the light shining on them, the light that comes from the good news about the glory of Christ. Okay, Again, character, the character of Christ, the kind of person our God is, not that he's bright, the good news about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. For it is not ourselves that we preach. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The God who said out of darkness the light shall shine is the same God who made his light shine in our hearts to bring us the knowledge of God's glory, his character. And again, where do we see the knowledge of what God is like? His character shining in the face of Christ. So as I understand the gospel, it is God is just like Jesus in character, precisely like Jesus revealed him to be. And so, uh, talking about the uh, Damascus Road conversion here, uh, which we brought up several times, but just briefly, again, if you just consider all the things that Paul was doing pre Damascus Road, he was reading his Bible, he was going to church, he was paying tithe, he was a uh, day of worship, all the things that uh, many of us would agree with. That's a wonderful list, Saul. A lo- wonderful list of things that uh, you are doing that are correct. And remember what happened here when the light came and he fell down and he said, Who are you, Lord? And the word came back, I am Jesus, who you persecute. And so what really changed at the Damascus Road was his picture of who God was changed. His picture of God now became Jesus Christ. Okay, and I think this is the essence of how Paul would describe the gospel. And uh, just maybe for some of you here, just reading from our own Adventist um, heritage, just a few things. Why do we talk so much about the character of God? Well, just a couple of quotes here. From the beginning, it has been Satan's studied plan to cause men to forget God, that he might secure them to himself. Hence, he has sought to misrepresent the character of God, to lead men to cherish a false conception of him. The creator has been presented to their minds as closed with the attributes of the prince of evil himself, as arbitrary, severe, unforgiving. Okay, is there any component of our picture of God that includes arbitrary, severe, unforgiving qualities? Okay, why did he do this? That he might be feared, shunned, and even hated by men. Satan hoped to so confuse the minds of those whom he had deceived that they would put out their knowledge of God. And just one more. It is beyond the power of the human mind to estimate the evil which has been wrought by the heresy of eternal torment. The religion of the Bible, full of love and goodness and abounding in compassion is darkened by superstition and clothed with terror. When we consider in what false colors Satan has painted the character of God, can we wonder that our merciful creator is feared, dreaded, and even hated? The appalling views of God, which have spread over the world from the teachings of the pulpit, have made thousands, yes, millions, of skeptics and infidels. And I find it interesting here that when you read the opening of Galatians 1, this passage we just read, if anyone preaches to you another gospel, even if it's an angel from heaven. Now, who was the first Person to preach a false gospel? Was it not Satan? Okay, and, uh, and just imagine here how authoritative this would be if a great angel of light came down and settled down here in Loma Linda and did miracles and all kinds of things. Um, would, would you be able to resist that kind of force and compulsion if that individual then went on to preach a false gospel? It would be very difficult. Okay, but I think Paul is saying, even in that setting, If it's against the gospel, I will reject it. Well, Paul would go on to tell his story, which is kind of interesting here. Let me tell you, my friends, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any human being, nor did anyone teach it to me. It was Jesus Christ himself who revealed it to me. You have been told how I used to live when I was devoted to the Jewish religion, how I persecuted without mercy the church of God and did my best to destroy it. I was ahead of most other Jews of my age in my practice of the Jewish religion and was much more devoted to the traditions of our ancestors." Immediately after my calling, without consulting anyone around me and without going up to Jerusalem to confer with those who were apostles long before I was, I got away to Arabia. Later I turned to Damascus, but it was three years before I went up to Jerusalem to compare stories with Peter. I was there only 15 days, but what days they were. Except for our master's brother James, I saw no other apostles. I'm telling you the absolute truth in this. And then I began my ministry. Okay, so we don't uh, consider this many years, uh, period of time where it would seem that Paul really got uh, settled into the truth. Fourteen years later, I went back to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went because God revealed to me that I should go. In a private meeting with the leaders, I explained the gospel message that I preached to the Gentiles. And we just defined what that is. My companion Titus, even though he is a Greek, was not forced to be circumcised, although some wanted it done. Pretending to be believers, these men slipped into our group as spies in order to find out about the freedom we have through our union with Christ Jesus. Now, in the context here, what do you think these men were trying to figure out? Uh, He just talked about uh, our freedom here in Titus, who was not forced to be circumcised. Don't you think these men were sent to try to figure out, is he circumcised or not? Imagine your mission as a spy to find out if someone is circumcised or not. (laughs) Okay, they wanted to make slaves of us. But in order to keep the truth of the gospel safe for you, we did not give in to them for a minute. Later, when Peter came to Antioch, I had a face-to-face confrontation with him because he was clearly out of line. Here's a situation. Earlier, because certain persons had come from James, Peter regularly ate with the non-Jews. But when that conservative group came from Jerusalem, that group we just talked about, where keeping the law was the essence of what was important, when that group came, he cautiously pulled back and put as much distance as he could manage between himself and his non-Jewish friends. That's how fearful he was of the conservative Jewish clique that's been pushing the old system of circumcision. Unfortunately, the rest of the Jews in Antioch Church joined in that hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was swept aw- along in the charade. And we just imagine uh, Paul and Peter having a face-to-face confrontation after the resurrection. Um, it's uh, quite colorful. Here are the story. But when I saw that they were not maintaining a steady, straight course, according to the message, I spoke up to Peter in front of them all. If you, a Jew, live like a non-Jew when you're not being observed by the watchdogs from Jerusalem, what right do you have to require non-Jews to conform to Jewish customs just to make a favorable impression on your old Jerusalem cronies? And you can always tell here when we're quoting from the Message uh, Bible. Um, But um, this is, uh, I think, quite accurately describes the confrontation here between Paul and Peter. Uh, The book of Galatians was the first book that Eugene Peterson uh, translated. And uh, I think it's uh, uh, really a a very good translation. But you would never get these words from the Greek, okay? So it's not not a study Bible, perhaps. Now, reading on here in Galatians. Yet we know that people don't receive God's approval because of their own efforts to live according to a set of standards. How do we get God's approval? But only by believing in Jesus Christ. And we've talked about this word. There is one Greek word that means faith, trust, believe. And we've said that in the book of James, the devils believe. That's not the kind of belief that we're talking about here. Really, it is trusting in Jesus. So we also believed or trusted in Jesus Christ in order to receive God's approval by faith, by trust in Christ and not because of our own efforts. People won't receive God's approval because of their own efforts to live according to a set of standards. Okay, this is the mindset he's trying to change. We don't get right with God by keeping a list. Let me explain, it is through trust. We know very well that we are not set right with God by rule keeping but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. How do we know? We tried it, and we had the best system of rules the world has ever seen. Convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement, we believed in Jesus as the Messiah so that we might be set right before God by trusting in the Messiah, not by trying to be good. Have some of you noticed that we are not yet perfect? No great surprise, right? Are you ready to make the accusation that since people like me who go through Christ in order to get things right with God aren't perfectly virtuous, that Christ must therefore be an accessory to sin? The accusation is frivolous. If I was trying to be good, I would be rebuilding the same old barn that I tore down. I would be acting as a charlatan. Okay, we're not put right with God by the effort at trying to be good. Paul is saying it is through trust in God. And God came in human form to restore us to trust, just like the thief on the cross. I mean, what good things did he do? What things on the good list did he keep? I mean, all he did was he turned, he saw the one hanging next to him, he admired him and uh, he put his trust in him. And Jesus said, that's good. You trust me, you'll be in the kingdom. What actually took place is this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion, and I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. I mean, that is the whole purpose of the atonement, the at one God is to live in us. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not going to go back on that. Is it not clear to you that to go back to that old rule-keeping Pure pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free in my relationship with God. I refuse to do that, to repudiate God's grace. If a living relationship with God could come by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. Now, interesting here, if a living relationship with God could come by rule-keeping, Christ died unnecessarily. Why did Christ die? Was it not to bring us back into a living relationship with God? Once again, So trust in Christ, not the law. You foolish Galatians, who put a spell on you? Before your very eyes, you had a clear description of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, which he would just say in Romans, remember, that in his death, the righteousness of God is revealed. You had that description. Tell me this one thing. Did you receive God's spirit by doing what the law requires or by hearing the gospel and believing it? How can you be so foolish? You began by God's Spirit. Do you want to finish by your own power? Did all your experience mean nothing at all? Surely it meant something. Does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you because you do what the law requires or because you hear the gospel and believe? And uh, here, to hear the gospel, this is not just through the preaching of the word because, of course, in those days, you didn't have a Bible in your home unless you were, I suppose, very rich. There were rare scrolls in synagogues. So to hear The Bible, you literally did hear it. Someone would get up, they'd read it uh, from a scroll. So to hear the word and to believe. Now, to reach them, the Jews, consider the experience of Abraham. As the scripture says, he believed God, he trusted God, and because of his faith, his trust, God accepted him as righteous. And uh, when you go back to Romans, remember Paul said, you "Now, did he trust God? Was he put right with God before circumcision or after circumcision? And it was before circumcision. The circumcision was the act to confirm on Abraham's part that uh, he really was, uh, he had accepted this agreement, this covenant with God. So you go back to Genesis and it's put this way. Abraham put his trust in the Lord. And because of this, the Lord was pleased with him and accepted him. Again, to put our trust in God is That's all that God asks. But of course, many people have said with words that they put their trust in God. Again, uh, not to pick on the Pharisees too much, but if you had asked them, do you trust God? Absolutely, they would die for their trust in God. But again, their picture of who God was, was false. God came in human form, they hated him. So it's not just trust, say we trust in God, it is having a true knowledge of God, liking that he is that way and putting our trust in him. Notice, what's the sign now? So circumcision in the Old Testament, what's the sign that we are a Christian? And I like to consider this verse here in Romans again. For he is not a real Jew who is only one outwardly and publicly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And true circumcision is of the heart, a spiritual and not a literal matter. So remember, the one command of Christ, the night before he died, he said, I give you a new command, love one another. Didn't give us a long list. Just do this one thing. Love one another. That is the sign that you are a Christian. So, natural question then. Again, if you are of a a mindset that we're set right with God by keeping the law and you've heard Paul say all of this, it's been read up in church and you're up to this point, wouldn't this be your question? Well, if what you say is true, Paul, then what then was the purpose of the law? And we're just quoting here from Galatians. Well, what is the purpose of the law? How would you answer that? It was added in order to show what wrongdoing is. Now, that's very interesting. It was added. Um, what law would you say was added? Would this be all law? Or would this be just the old ceremonial law? What law was added? And it's interesting to consider other translations of this. What is the use of the law here in CEV version? It was given later to show that we sin. And in the God's Word translation, what then is the purpose of the laws given to Moses? They were added, added to identify what wrongdoing is. And we, we usually think of the law in this way, that the law reveals wrongdoing. Kind of interesting here the way Paul described it, and maybe we could consider it this way. Let's say you have a pneumonia. We've used this illustration before, but I think it just ties in so well here. So we've got uh, an illness here. We have an infection that's very serious. And again, the mindset of the Pharisees in Jesus' day was, well, it's the external that's important. So if you have a pneumonia and you have fever and cough and you take medications so that you don't have a fever, okay, we'll give you Tylenol, give you Motrin, you don't have a fever, is the problem solved? Well, you don't have a fever, things are pretty good. You have a cough, you take cough medications so you don't cough. Um, Does that fix the problem? No, I mean, you're still sick, you've got a pneumonia, you need a remedy for the root of the problem. Okay, and so the mindset again in this time was, well, we'll just externally we'll keep the law, and of course on the inside there was a brewing uh, infection of sin, selfishness, fear, all kinds of things that they needed a remedy for. So we can think of the law; it's like, uh, you know, having a chest X-ray that reveals, my goodness, I've got an pneumonia. I need something, I need something to heal me. I'm pretty sick. Get an MRI scan. I've got cancer. I mean, it's like a diagnostic tool almost that we use in medicine to reveal convincingly, there is something wrong with me. So again, I like the the physician model of understanding the plan of salvation. I think there are many insights that we could get from this. If you are a sick patient coming to a doctor and your doctor has carefully listened to you, examined you, has come to the diagnosis, this is your problem, um, what do you want from the doctor? Do you want the doctor just to say, you know what, I forgive you, and you leave the office, tell your wife at home, he forgave me? Um, Is that what you really want? Don't you want to get better? And we're sometimes offended by this because it sounds like uh, we're talking about perfectionism. Okay. But are we supposed to get better? Doesn't God ultimately, I think what happens is uh, we are trusting God is restored. We believe our heavenly physician, he's really trustworthy. You know what? I'm going to keep my appointments. He says, I need to take antibiotics and we'll apply that to the spiritual realm. But we trust God. So we're going to take the medication. We're going to keep our visits. We're going to stay in relationship, in contact with him. And uh, again, we're not working to heal ourselves you can't work to heal yourself of a pneumonia or to work to get rid of the brain tumor. Okay, Our work is to stay in connection, in relationship with our heavenly physician. And then it is an unavoidable consequence. We can't help it. Healing occurs. But we're not supposed to work on the healing. We're supposed to work on the relationship. Okay, so then Paul would give a very helpful illustration. The law was added. And then he would say this. I'm reading this in the King James just because we want to try to understand here. What is the schoolmaster? Paul would say, "...but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster." Now, what does that mean? And it's always helpful here to go back, consider other translations. I won't try to pronounce the word in Greek, but can you kind of see words like pediatrician uh, coming out of this? And so other translations of this verse, it really means a boy leader. That is a servant whose office it was to take the children to school. So this is someone in that time, maybe a slave, a servant, who would make sure that the child got to school. So in the good news, it's the person in charge of us or a child custodian, a guardian, a tutor, a trainer, pedagogue, a uh, slave. So in other words, this is not the teacher. The purpose is to make sure we get to school, to bring us to the teacher. Okay, and so the law is really, it's kind of like a hedge of protection to make sure that we arrive and, at the teacher who of course ultimately is Jesus Christ. Now we need to understand this a little better. So uh, let's read the whole thing here. I think the Message Bible in this section is just fantastic. And it's described this way. Again, spelled out in a lot more detail. Until the time when we were mature enough to respond freely in faith to the living God, we were carefully surrounded and protected by the Mosaic law. The law was like those Greek tutors which you are familiar, who escorted children to school to protect them from danger or distraction, making sure the children will really get to the place they are set out for. But now you have arrived at your destination. By faith in Christ, you are in direct relationship with God." Okay, so these tutors, again, a good illustration of the law. It was a hedge of protection to bring us to the teacher. Now let's uh, try to illustrate this. I've got a picture here of my two sons, Caleb and James. And uh, having children has just helped me understand a thousand difficult things in the Bible. Um, Now, when your kids are behaving well, do you have lots and lots of rules? When your kids are happy, they're behaving, they're loving each other, Um, as a parent, are you hammering them with lots of rules at this time? No, it's not necessary. Well, look at them, they're, they're behaving wonderfully. But of course, uh, not to pick on James here, but sometimes, um, you know, things happen and kids disobey. And guess that, guess what? That's when a lot of rules begin. You have to use those as a parent. Again, as a hedge of protection, consider things like candy. Boy, you walk by something like this with your children. Again, it may be an imperfect illustration here, but just imagine your child says, you know what, I just want to eat candy all day long. And that's it. I mean, Halloween with kids is really something here. And, but anyway, uh, what do you do? Well, um, maybe you need to have some some rules or um, things like uh, eating vegetables. Kids don't tend to be attracted to these. But uh, what what is difficult is children in their spiritual immaturity, have you tried to sit down to a four-year-old and explain why eating too much candy is bad, why eating healthy food is good? Do they understand? I mean, you could just talk and talk And then the next sentence will be, now, can I have the candy, right? So yeah, it's helpful if they can understand, but in their spirit, in their immaturity, okay, they just need some rules, right? And, um, but the point is, God has used this reward-punishment model to help us to obey. The problem is if we just get stuck with the reward-punishment model. Again, imagine your child now. He's grown up, he's in college, and he calls you from college to say, "'Dad, guess what? I only had one piece of candy today and I ate my broccoli. Uh, are you happy? Will you punish me, Dad?' If, uh, I mean, wouldn't that be very sad if your child was still in the reward-punishment model? Okay, Dad, I brushed my teeth. Uh, are you happy with me today? I mean, are you pleased with that level of obedience?' Uh, That is the lowest level of obedience. And God reaches us at that level. And he did it again and again a thousand times in the Old Testament. I will punish if you do this. All right. But that is meeting people at a certain level. How about this? How about if your child called and said, "Uh, you know what, dad, I ate a full plate of broccoli today because I love you. Now, would that please you as a parent? Of course, they hang up the phone and say to their roommate, I've never understood, never made any sense to me why I should eat vegetables, never made any sense why I should brush teeth, but I love my dad, so I'm going to do it. Even love for God is not the best reason to obey. And I agree, it has to be there, obviously, but the, the ultimate for obedience is that we agree with God. What you really want as a parent is for your children to think it through. You know what? It really makes sense. If I don't brush my teeth, I get cavities. And I found that out a few times. Okay? It makes sense. And I'm going to do it not because dad is there with a stick or with a reward. But I am going to do it because it makes all the sense in the world. And I think that's ultimately what God is looking for as well. I think God is happy if we obey because we love him. Of course he's happy with that. But ultimately, I think he wants us to understand. And all the things he's asked us to do, we do because, wow, that makes sense. I just, I want to live that way, not because uh, I'm being told I have to. Okay, so to to round this out here in other places, in Romans, Paul would say, be under obligation to no one. The only obligation you have is to love one another. Okay, again, what's the purpose of all the law? It was to bring us to God, and what did Jesus tell us again and again? Love one another. i give you one command, love one another. Whoever does this has obeyed the law. The commands, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not desire what belongs to somebody else. All these and any others besides are summed up in the one command, love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you love others, you will never do them wrong. To love then is to obey the whole law. Okay, so God had to give 10 commandments and a 1,000 other commandments to bring us ultimately to him because the one thing he wanted is love others. And Jesus would say, even love your enemy and pray for them. And that's hard to do. So shall we say then that the law itself is sinful? Of course not. But it was the law that made me know what sin is. If the law had not said, do not desire what belongs to somebody else, I would not have known such a desire. I mean, the law, it really is kind of like two things. In the law of course, even in the Ten Commandments, we see the first four, love for God, the last six, love for neighbor. So, in a sense, they are a reflection of God's character, a transcript of God's character. But of course, when we see God, even impartially, what do we immediately see? We see ourselves. Okay, we see His goodness. We see how we do not, uh, we do not reflect God's character very often. So it comes back and it convicts us of how we're out of harmony with God. In 1 Timothy, Paul would describe the law this way. It must be remembered, of course, that laws are made not for good people, but for lawbreakers and criminals, for the godless and sinful, for those who are not religious or spiritual, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murders, for the immoral, for sexual perverts, for kidnappers, for those who lie and give false testimony, or who do anything else contrary to sound doctrine. And uh, so often here we consider Mount Sinai and we consider this magnific- magnificent scene here where God gave the 10 commandments to Moses. But just when you look at the laws that God had to give, I mean, just, it is a little bit sad that he had to give the law in the first place. You know, just imagine here that um, you're with your family and they're leaving for work and you had to tell your family, look, there is no uh, you have no other father or husband than me. Please do not choose another father another husband than me. Imagine that you had to tell your family, uh, you know what, we are going to spend a day together this weekend, I command you. We will spend that day together, we will not work. We will do something together. And the kids, oh man, burdensome legal system that we're under. Imagine that you had to tell your kids on their way to school, please do not kill anyone in class today. Um, Wouldn't that reflect a pretty rebellious state in your home? What if you had to tell your wife, please do not commit adultery today? Would that not reflect a pretty sad state of your marriage? So again, the the rules that God gave reflected the rebellion of the time. It is not the ideal. The ideal is you love others, you love even your enemy. For no one is put right in God's sight by doing what the law requires. What the law does is to make us know that we have sinned. It's so uh, redundant there. And as Paul would go on to describe here in Romans, when he read the 10th commandment, which says, do not desire. uh, That was just too much for him. Don't even want to do wrong. And uh, that that was uh, upset Paul when he read that. So when David would say, I gain wisdom from your laws, and so I hate all bad conduct. I mean, the rules really help do, bring us to see the two sides. And uh, ultimately, of course, we agree with God, and that's why we don't do uh, things that are wrong. So in Romans 3, Paul would say, well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? What does it mean to be free of the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. So Paul is not saying, just go out there and be rebels. You're saved by trust. No, he's saying, don't start by trying to obey. Start by coming into a relationship with God. Start by trusting in God. And if you do, you will change. So maybe another illustration here. Imagine here we've got this beach. Maybe it's a beautiful beach, uh, but there are sharks out in the ocean. And so perhaps uh, because of time and uh, distortion of all kinds of things in our mind, we have come to believe that this beach is just perfectly safe to swim in. And so God has to come along and put up lots of signs, do not swim, danger, uh, I will punish, signed God. And we come by and we say, Boah, such a burdensome legal thing. God has put all these rules that we can't have fun. And, um, and so, uh, but, but again, what ultimately, if we come to understand things, we see, my goodness, I would never in the world want to swim in that ocean. That's dangerous. And then, of course, we can walk by and God can take the signs down, right? Because uh, we don't need the rule to not swim in an ocean infested with sharks. And this is to come into agreement with God. This is when we're free, really. We are free when we agree that what God has asked makes all the sense in the world. We are free when we can walk by this beach and walk on to a, a better beach where there are no sharks. That's what it means to be free. So as Paul would go on to describe freedom... It really is in in this context. Uh, First of all, in James, on freedom. Do not deceive yourselves by just listening to his word. Instead, put it into practice. If you listen to the word, but do not put it into practice, you are like people who look in a mirror and see themselves as they are. They take a good look at themselves and then go away and at once forget what they look like. But notice, but if you look closely into the perfect law that sets people free, now do we usually think about the law in that way? Does the law set us free? if you look closely into the perfect law that sets people free and keep on paying attention to it and do not simply listen and then forget it, but put it into practice, you will be blessed by God in what you do. Again, ultimately, we're free when we do everything we want. But everything that we want to do is perfectly in harmony with what God has asked us to do. So in Galatians 4, but now that you know God, or should I say now that God knows you, How is it that you want to turn back to those weak and pitiful ruling spirits? Why do you want to become their slaves all over again? Freedom is what we have. Again, we are free. It doesn't do away with the law, but we are free if we agree with God. Christ has set us free. Stand then as free people and do not allow yourselves to become slaves again. Listen, I, Paul, tell you that if you allow yourselves to be circumcised, it means that Christ is of no use to you at all. Once more, I warn any man who allows himself to be circumcised that he is obliged to obey the whole law. Those of you who try to be put right with God by obeying the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You are outside God's grace. As for us, our hope is that God will put us right with him, and this is what we wait for by the power of God's Spirit working through our faith. So again, as I understand it, how it works is God reveals a true knowledge of himself to us. Ultimately, through the person of Jesus Christ. That restores us to trust and to relationship. And then, by beholding, we become changed. We don't work on being changed. We work on being in that uh, connection, relationship with God. So, this verse in Galatians here really hammers that point home. For if we are in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith, trust, which is activated and energized and expressed and working through love. Now, I don't use the Amplified Bible very often because it takes one little part and it blows it up, it amplifies it, but I like the different words here. Faith or trust, what is it that stimulates our trust? It is activated, energized, expressed, and working through love. And it is love that awakens love within us. God loved us, we see that so clearly when he came in human form, That is what wins us back. That is the activating force for our trust in God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the great condescension we see. I mean, of course, we talk so much about you coming in human form, but all the rules that you had to give us uh, in human history. And we just pray now that um, we can understand, perhaps, why you gave all those rules. But help us to follow your one rule, which is, that we reveal who you are by the way we treat others, that we reveal we are Christians by the way we love others, even our enemies. Amen.